Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning, and I would like to share with you uh, something that may or may not occur to you, but, uh, you know, your worship individually impacts our worship corporately. And when you worship corporately, it blesses people. And I will tell you that the highlight of my week, and I've said this before, but one of the highlights of my week is when I come here to join you in corporate worship. And let me encourage you, if you don't practice daily personal worship, that you engage, begin to engage in that practice, either through the reading of the word or the singing of the word, but engagement in the word of God in personal worship. It will transform your corporate worship when you come together as a body uh, like we have today. So I want to encourage you in that area. It's been a tremendous blessing to me. And frankly, when I, when I come on Sunday mornings, uh, I'm, I'm ready to join in with you. And of course, the idea of worship is to give praise and honor, to ascribe value to our God. And so just wanted to share that with you. Um, Pastor Sam, I appreciate him very much for giving me the opportunity to step in and share some things that are on my heart this morning. Uh, if you were to uh, look for recruit members of a mutual admiration club, you would not want to recruit me uh, because I am not a member of the mutual admiration club. But I want to say this publicly. Uh, I've known Sam for probably three decades. Uh, we've gotten to know each other a lot, a lot more closely now as he's leading our ministry here. And I can tell you that there's, I'm absolutely confident that God has led him to lead our ministry. And as I get to know him better, uh, I become more and more confident that he is going to lead our ministry into its next steps and where God wants us uh, to be. September has uh, some significance. Um, September uh, the 1st marks the beginning of my 39th year in South Carolina. God called me here. Uh, I haven't left. Uh, no one's been able to run me off. Uh, I'm rooted and planted, but as I learned many years ago, I'm still not from here. Um, the, another significant event uh, that takes place in the month of September is that um, my mom and dad got married in September. Uh, another uh, significant event, which will take place on September the 27th, will be my 35th wedding anniversary. So my sweet wife back here is with us today. So September holds a lot of significance to it. And in a moment, you may see something else that's significant in the month of December. But as some of you are aware that I've joked the fact that when it comes to PowerPoint, that uh, God, I, I, I had a learner's permit. It was revoked. Um, I've tried to exercise that learner's permit today. I've learned that uh, my learner's permit, my skill set has exceeded the ability of the technology that we have. And so the PowerPoint may not work exactly the way we want it to, but my encouragement this morning is to focus on the Word of God and approach this morning with what is it that God has for me from His Word today. So let's, let's take a moment and we're going to launch into the PowerPoint and get started. Oh, that, look at that. That's, that's, it must be a rookie mistake. Um, that's Olivia, Gray, uh, Olivia uh, Jane Grendling, and she was born on Friday. Uh, you'll see uh, my dear son and uh, daughter-in-law there uh, as Olivia's coming home. And by God's grace, um, I have a date, a hot date with a young woman. And Beck and I are going to scramble out of here as soon as the service is over, and we're going to go meet this young lady face-to-face for the very, very first time. You know, it's interesting for me how the journey goes when God works in my heart to speak to you or to other people. And, you know, Sam had approached me sometime back to bring the ETS on evangelism, which I was privileged to share with you a number of weeks ago. The intent was that I would bring two messages. I would speak on Sunday morning, and then I would bring the message on evangelism in, in equipping the saints. Well, that didn't work out that way. Uh, and the design was for these two messages to dovetail together. And so with that in mind, what I began to understand as I was not able to speak on Sunday morning worship service on the topic that we're going to talk about today is that God, I wasn't ready yet. And in the weeks since those dates, God has done some things in and through me 
that have led me to understand that I wasn't ready, but today I believe I am. So from the Word of God, we're in Titus, and the theme this morning and the challenge that I want to, uh, to bring to us this morning is a burden that I have on my heart. And it's a desire to encourage you as our church family to consider how we can impact our community. I asked that we read from Hebrews because there's a phrase there that's in Hebrews that says to provoke one another to love and good works. And part of the responsibility that pastors have, that leaders have, is to encourage or in, uh, kindly provoke each other into the love and to good works. And, and the thing that caught my attention was this concept of good works. And as I was studying through the book of Titus in the last six, six or eight weeks, this theme kept recurring, and it's the theme of good works. Now, so this morning, what we'll consider... Did I turn it? I need to turn it on. Is that what y'all... Have I turned it on? No, I haven't. You guys were covering for me, weren't you? You were doing a great job. Okay, here we go. So... The thing I'd like for us to consider this morning is this concept of being devoted to, to and zealous for good works. And this is a biblical concept. I'd like to share that with you this morning. It begins with this, a story about man and birdhouses. So on August the 23rd, I show up to our pastor's meeting at White Oak Baptist Church. They've allowed us to use their conference room. It's across the street from a, a famous university. And uh, I usually try to show up early. And I showed up early and had with me a, a nice glass of water. And it was hot that day, very hot that day. And as I got out of the car, I see this man walking out of the building. And he's dressed very casually, and he has a box on his head. It's like, what is this? I've never seen this guy before. What is going on? And as he comes down the sidewalk, he stops, and he says, can I speak with you for a moment? I said, Certainly. And so what he does is he takes his box and he sets it down, and it's got birdhouses in it. The short end of the story is that this guy was in a difficult situation, and he was looking for help. And as he was looking for help, I'm standing there thinking, what resources do I have at this moment to help this gentleman? What can I connect him with? And not being a Greenvillian, but being an Andersonian, I'm a little bit weak on the Greenvillian contacts, places where we could direct him to get some help. But the interesting thing about the conversation was is that he wasn't asking for a handout. He was selling birdhouses, and he, but he still had a need. And as I looked at the birdhouses, I, I, you know, we, we could find all kinds of holes in this gentleman's story. But at the end of the day, God worked in my heart to, to, to do something. And now the Pharisee in me, it's like, I'm not helping this guy. He shows up, he's a beggar. He doesn't, you know, what's wrong with him? He's made bad decisions, yada, da 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 But the Jesus in me said, Ralph, I'm presenting you with an opportunity to do something for this gentleman. And so through our conversation, I actually bought a birdhouse. Now, do I need a bird? We have hummingbird feeders. We love them. But do I need a birdhouse? No. Uh, where would I put the birdhouse? I have no clue. But what I decided to do, and this is for God's glory, this isn't about me, is I said to the gentleman, I appreciate the birdhouse, I purchased it from you, and here's what I would like to do. If you'll let me do it, I'm going to give you the birdhouse back. And he looked at me and he said, no, no, no. And I said, you created something, I paid for it, now I would like to give you a gift. And it just gave him the opportunity to go sell the birdhouse someplace else. But that, that experience impacted me with this concept of the idea of love and good works. And as I said, I wasn't ready. And now I think God's worked in my heart with circumstances and facts and other things to help me be better prepared to even share this with you this morning. So the challenge of good works that comes in the book of Titus, okay? The challenge of good works in the book of Titus. The first that we see is that in verse, in verse 15 of chapter 1 is that... Paul, writing to Titus, says this. Oh, by the way, I noticed something else about Titus. I want to just stop for a second. The passage that Pastor Sam read is another passage I asked him to read. And you know something? That is a very practical handbook on how to interact with people. I would encourage you, if nothing else, go back and consider that. It's a guidepost on how to interact with believers, but also with unbelievers. But going back to Titus chapter 1, and starting in verse 15, he says this. To the pure, 
all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both in their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, they're disobedient, and they're unfit for any good work. So who are these people that are detestable? Well, if you go back up into the context, it's those who contradict sound doctrine. And in the book of Titus, what Titus, Paul does is that he ties sound doctrine to sound practice. This was a phrase that I picked up many, many years ago. Orthopraxy, or ortho, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right thinking leads to right practice. And what Paul is saying here is these dear people that he's addressing in, in, to Titus in chapter 1, these are not thinking correctly. They do not have a correct biblical worldview. They do not have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So then, not only is there, we're considering this challenge of good works, but Titus goes on in, verse, in chapter 2 and verse 7, and he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So who is Paul admonishing to be the model? It's Titus. So Paul is saying, Titus, I want you to be an example, a model. The word model here is the idea of to stamp an imprint. Now, you can't see this, and because I'm not completely proficient, I don't have my PhD in PowerPoint yet, um, you can imagine what this is. This is a uh, Eisenhower 17, or 1976 half dollar. And on the front of it is imprinted the, uh, the uh, image of Dwight D. Eisenhower on the back is the Liberty Bell and the moon. And these are, this, is how, this is how coins are made. They're stamped, they're imprinted, they're, they're, a, they're a pattern. Becky has worked her heart out today, or this week, or this month, making a blanket to carry over to Olivia, okay? She followed a pattern. What Titus is, Paul is saying to Titus is, you, the way you live your life is a pattern for other people to follow. Keep that in mind. And then he goes on, and speaking of Christ, he says this, who gave himself for us, this is so fabulous, to redeem us from all all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who are those people? I'm looking at them this morning. I hope you can embrace this, that God, Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem you and to help you to become pure, and to abandon lawlessness, and to empower you to engage and to be zealous for love and good works. Now, I'm fascinated by this idea, this concept of zealous. It has the idea of burning with zeal, that God God has a jealous rivalry, or sternly vindicating his control, or the most eager and desirous of. One of my most favorite television programs, you'll laugh, it's okay, is College Game Day. How many of you have seen College Game Day? Come on now, help me out. You've seen College Game Day. I live to watch College Game Day. The football games are okay, but College Game Day is so exciting. Yesterday was the first day that College Game Day was back in a year that had a crowd, and it was Georgia versus Clemson. And they met, they they were in Charlotte, and there's this, these crowds of Georgia fans and these crowds of Clemson fans and other fans from all over the country who come just to experience game day. And there's this enthusiasm and this excitement and these people are waving banners and they have signs and they're jumping up and down. And Ladies and gentlemen, if you need an example of zealousness, just watch college game day. But that's a pattern for us as believers to embrace. And Paul is saying, Titus, I want you to be not only a pattern, but speak of Jesus himself who gave himself for us to redeem us that we could be zealous for good works. And then we look at verse chapter 3 and verse 8. And he goes on and he says this. This is a trustworthy saying. Now remember, this is Paul talking to Titus. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to, interestingly enough, insist on these things. So now, Titus is to insist on these things with the people over whom he is shepherding. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
So what Titus is, or Paul is saying to Titus is this, is that what I'm about to tell you is worthy of trust, it's reliable, and it's something that should be persuaded, persuasive. So this is something to embrace. It should change the way you think. It should change the way you act. I want you, Titus, to insist, to strongly affirm that the people that you're leading are to devote themselves to love and to good works. The idea of devoting is to to oversee, it's to be engaged in, it's the idea of planning, it's the idea of being a guardian or protector of. And then we see the nature of these good works. The nature is excellent and profitable. Now, the the word excellent has the idea of being handsome or beautiful. So when I bring up handsome or I bring up beautiful, there's something in your mind that comes to your mind that you picture. And it's something that usually, if it's beautiful or if it's handsome, it's desirable. It's something that you want to look at and gaze upon and maybe enjoy. It could be whatever it is. This is the type of thing that God, that that Paul is telling Titus to be in a model of, to exhort his followers to to be examples, to be beautiful, to be handsome, to be lovely in their good works. And then not only are they excellent, but they're profitable. And the idea of good works and being profitable here is it's to other people's advantage. It's to someone else's advantage. It's not to the person, the advantage of the person who's engaging in the good work. It's to the recipient of the good work. So, and the object obviously is for people. So then we look at chapter 3 and verse 14. And Paul goes on to tell Titus and he says this, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help the cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. The idea there, devote again, is the same word that it was in the prior verse. It's the idea to superintend over. It's to, to plan. It's to be engaged in. And the idea of urgent need obviously speaks of something that makes pretty, pretty easy sense. But it's things that people cannot do without. It has the idea behind it of what is required by the circumstances. So it requires observation. It requires discernment. It, re- it requires thinking sometimes quickly on your own feet, as I was faced with the other day as this gentleman comes down with the birdhouses. So then I was, stopped, I was challenged to consider this. What, why, what is the aversion for some believers to good works? What is the aversion? Why do we sometimes want to avoid these types of good works? Well, for my generation, anyway, good works is, is often associated with what we know as the social gospel. And it's, that, it's the idea of working your salvation, becoming saved because of your good works. It's of doing good to others without any strings attached. It's this whole concept of going out and doing, being generous in the community, but not from a biblical point of view. Also, uh, then also I, the idea is that Paul dispels the social gospel in chapter 3 and verse 4. And, and, I, and Sam read this for me, and I appreciate that he did this, but here's what it says. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Boy, I, you could almost, almost have a zealous running fit over that one, couldn't you? but not because of works done by us in righteousness. So he defines it. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, not by works, not by good works, but by the grace of Jesus Christ, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may do what? Be careful to devote themselves to good works. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to submit to you that there's a lot of reasons, things that we should do because we're born again, because Christ dwells within us, because Jesus redeemed us. He, he gave himself on the cross for our benefit, because God wants us to have an intimate relationship with him. But one of those components is good works. So let me summarize this challenge as we see it in Titus, and this is where the slides get a little bit wonky. First of all, the engagement of believers in the performance of good works is not only encouraged, it's commanded. Secondly, 
A believer's encouragement is not to be happenstance, excuse me, a believer's engagement is not to be happenstance or casual, but purposeful with deep commitment. And thirdly, a believer's engagement in good works should be done with enthusiasm. You know, enthusiasm is contagious, and people know when you care about them. They know when you look them in the eye. They know when you engage them. When you know when you ask them questions about themselves and you seek to learn about them, they sense that enthusiasm, that care and the concern, and it's not a burden. It's something we love to do. So these are the mo- So let's then consider um, the model of good works, okay? There's some questions that are con- to be considered. One of them is this. What are the good works that we're to be devoted to? That's a legitimate question. The other is, who are the recipients of the believer's good works? So let's consider a model, okay? And we start with probably what most of us would think about, and that's the parable of the, good, or the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. So let's talk about the context for this for a minute. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And on his way, he sends an advance team to prepare a way for him to minister in Samaria. But he's rejected by the Samarians. They don't want to hear anything about Jesus. And so being rejected, why is he rejected? Because the Samaritans knew, one, that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The Samaritans did not worship. They were, they were half, considered half-breeds. They worshipped outside of Jerusalem, and they were enemies, so to speak, or they were at odds with the traditional Jews. And so they knew that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They rejected him. And here's an interesting response. The response of James and John in uh, chapter, verse 54 of, of Luke 9 gives us some insight, maybe even a challenge to our own hearts. The response of James and John reflect the Jews' hatred of the Samaritans. And when his disciples, James and John, by the way, there are the sons of what? The sons of thunder. Okay? When they saw that, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Boy, that's compassion, isn't it? The representatives of the Savior, to reunite all people and bring them to God and reconcile the relationship. Let's bring down fire. Okay, so that's the context. In Luke chapter 10, we, uh, we see that Christ appoints 70, and he sends them to every town that he's about to go to. In Luke chapter 10, we also see that he rebukes unrepentant cities. And then we come to the story of the, what we know as the Good Samaritan. And there's three primary groups of personalities involved that are actually there. One is Jesus himself. Number two, it's the lawyer in the story, but then there's observers. There's the twelve. And probably there's a crowd standing around because um, likely the, 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 the lawyer didn't come by himself. Jesus is out doing public ministry. And so the lawyer is an expert in the Old Testament. He's an expert in the, the Pentateuch, and he should know exactly the answers that he's asking of Jesus. But he's testing Jesus, and he wants to see if he can trip Jesus up. And then we have the priest. Excuse me. We, uh, so uh, forgive me. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. So then we have the characters in the story, okay? We have the man, who is the victim, and he is not identified in any way. And I believe that's the case. There's no name, there's no, there's no location, there's nothing, his, his vocation, there's nothing about where he, his heritage. And I think that was to keep him neutral in the story. He could represent any people group and to keep the focus on the other personalities in the story. And then there was the priest who represented man, God to man, and man to God. The priest, supposedly, again, proficient in the Pentateuch, had knowledge of God's instructions to care for other people. He functioned in the temple, and he, was, he handled holy sacrifices and offerings. He was a part of a team that once a year would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the altar as an atonement for the sins of mankind. So he was aware of these requirements, of how to deal with people. And then there was a Levite, and he was set apart as a caretaker of the tabernacle temple, and he worked in aid of the priest. So these are all very astute people. They know what's going on. And then there's the Samaritan. And again, likely he's a worshiper of God, but not in Jerusalem. The Samaritans set up their own worship in Mount Gerizim, and they were despised by the Jews uh, for centuries. So just for a moment, let's take a look at the text. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? 
How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love, this is the lawyer answering, so he knows the answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Because the question was, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Okay? But he, the lawyer, uh, wanting to justify himself, says to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Hmm. So then Jesus tells the story of the man who was going from Jericho, Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. He was stripped and beaten, and, and those men left him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, pass, he passed by him on the other side. Have we ever done that? And so, likewise, a Levite. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Ladies and gentlemen, a half-breed, a rejection of, of the Jews who were supposedly so holy, a, reject, a person rejected by the priest who had direct access to God, uh, the, the Levite who knew how to manage the access to God, they didn't do what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan had compassion. And he went where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went up to him, and he bound his wounds, and he poured on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think, Jesus asked the lawyer, proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So is, is Jesus teaching works... Or is he teaching us something else? Well, let's look at this. Our neighbors actually have been defined by Christ himself. So let's think about this for a while. Christ's daily life illustrated good works. So if you were to take the time to go back through the Gospels and see what Jesus did and where Jesus went and who Jesus spent his time with, Jesus did all of these things in a way that illustrated who he considered the neighbors that are talked about in the passage in Luke chapter 10. So first of all, we see from Christ's point of view that one of the neighbors was the victim on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And ladies and gentlemen, I would submit to you that there are times when people are presented to us that we didn't anticipate being presented to us, but they're like this man who was a victim and God gives us a window of opportunity to do good works for them, to serve them. Also then, we think of in John chapter 4, Jesus intentionally sought out a woman at the well. Are you familiar with that story? She was a Samaritan, a half-breed, a reject. The, the disciples didn't understand this, and Jesus approaches the, her. And she says, how is it that you as a Jew ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? If you follow the narrative, you're probably familiar with it, but again, you can find that in John chapter 4. I'd like to focus on a couple of things. Starting in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because, number one, of the woman's testimony. That is powerful influence right there. They knew her. She had had five husbands. She was living with a man who was not her husband. And she's telling them about this man who's told her about all these things. And she's telling the story about the redemption that she's experiencing, her sin being forgiven by this man. And he told me whatever I did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, this is significant. They asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two who is he staying with? The half-breeds, the rejects, the people that were despised by the Jews. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. Excuse me, let me back up to verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. 
Jesus identified our neighbor. Without going in detail any further, we consider the man who was blind, born blind from birth, who was a uh, neighbor of Jesus. Because Jesus sought him out. Uh, we think of the man who was sick of palsy. We think of the man who was sick of leprosy. We think of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, probably the most despised man in his community. We think of Nicodemus, a very religious man, but a Pharisee. So my question is this. What does being devoted to zealous and to and zealous of good works look like? Okay, well, here's Jesus' answer. When he comes back to the lawyer and he says this, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer's response, the one who showed him mercy. And so what does Jesus say? You go and do likewise. Jesus identifies the neighbor. Jesus tells the the lawyer how to do this. What? To do likewise. Well, what is likewise? Well, the Samaritan had compassion on the victim. Not only did he have compassion on the victim, he showed mercy. You know, mercy is extending grace. That's not that, that would, so grace is unmerited favor, okay? Mercy is someone extending favor to you in an amazing and undeserved way. The Samaritan provided immediate care for someone he did not know. You know, there are needs within our, in our community with folks who need immediate care. The Samaritan provided not only immediate care, but he, provide, he changed his plans for the victim. How many of us have our plan set for the day, and God brings a holy interruption and challenges us with it, and we either respond to it or we ignore it and move on. Not only did he change his plans, but he improvised by using his available resources. He, was, he bound wounds with oil and wine. He, he uh, analyzed, utilized his animal to transport the man to the inn. And he uh, then committed to the innkeeper that he would pay for any additional expenses. So Jesus characterizes these good works. James reinforces this in James chapter 2. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So, Jesus says, go and do likewise. So then, what does being devoted to and zealous for good works actually look like? Well, as a believer, understand this. That if Christ dwells within you, according to Paul instructing Titus, we are ministers of good works. And he emphasizes this in Ephesians. He says this, Therefore, be imitators of God. Look like him. Not only that, but not only be imitators of God, beloved children, but walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul says this also in Ephesians. Of this gospel I was made a minister, a servant, according to the great gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Paul admonishes believers to imitate himself. He says this in 1 Corinthians 4, I urge you then to be imitators of me. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ, if Christ dwells within us, our actions and our attitudes should be reflective of Jesus Christ. And Jesus shows us who our neighbors are. And Jesus engages these people, and he demonstrates to us and has demonstrated to us what love and good works looks like. I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, now he's speaking of spiritual gifts here, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Not only are we a minister of grace, but I'd like for us to consider this as well when we come to living out this idea, what does it look like to be devoted and zealous to love and to good works? 
we are ambassadors. Okay, Paul makes that clear. You're probably familiar with the verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. So what does an ambassador do? Well, first of all, he's empowered to represent. In my professional life, I am empowered to represent a company. I have credentials. I've had to go through certifications. I have responsibilities. But when I walk into a room or I I am involved in a meeting, I have the authority to represent my company. Some of you work for other companies. You're, you're empowered, you're authorized to represent them. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to submit to you that we are authorized, that every one of us in this room who knows Jesus as Savior are authorized to represent Jesus Christ. Also, what is an ambassador? It is one who establishes relationships between organizations, people, or nations. How engaged are you as a believer in our community to to connect people, to establish relationships with Christ himself and with a local church ministry? Or are we so busy going about our daily routine and we're comfortable in, our, in the tracks that we run and we have these things that are going on in our lives and we don't ever consider the fact that as ambassadors, it's partly our, it is our responsibility to establish relationships, to bring people to him. We're empowered and we're given authority to do so. An ambassador is one who builds trust. That's a key thing in our, in, our, in our world today and what's going on around us. But an ambassador builds trust, and then he's one who is, has the endorsement of the sending body that they represent. Now, this next one, we're an aroma. 2 Corinthians 2.15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one we're a fragrance of death to death, and to another a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul's overwhelmed by this concept. You have a favorite fragrance? I have one. It's called barbecue smoke. I love barbecue smoke. And every opportunity that I have, and Becky will tell you it's very frequently, I'm on my back porch and my grill is going, and on that grill is not only charcoal, but there's mesquite and there's oak. And when you're involved in cooking food on a grill like that, it just permeates you because the smoke rises. And I'm like, oh, it smells so good. Of course, the food's good too. And then I go at the end of the day, and I go upstairs, and I'm, I'm preparing for bed, And that aroma, that fragrance is in my hair. It permeates my clothes. Does the aroma of the life of Jesus Christ permeate you in such a way that whether you say so or not, men and women have the fragrance of Jesus Christ? Are you so close to him that when they see you, they see you, but they see something else and they can't explain it and they don't understand it? We are ministers of grace. We are ambassadors for Christ, but we are also an aroma of life itself. So, let's understand and embrace a God-honoring approach to good works. The idea behind this is to lead those who we're helping to restore and develop an intimate relationship with God. It's not just to give them food. It's not just to give them clothing, help them get a job, help them start their car. The other day I was across the street helping a neighbor trim his hedges because he couldn't work his chainsaw right. It's not just that. What it is is helping people to restore and develop an intimate relationship with God. To lead others who are being helped to enjoy a right relationship, first of all, with themselves. Now, this isn't unique to me. This, is, this comes from a book called When Helping Hurts. I would suggest that you get this book and you read it. And one of the ideas behind this is that to lead those who are being helped to restore and develop an intimate relationship with God. That's what we do as ambassadors. But then also to lead those who are being helped to enjoy a right relationship with themselves. That sounds like psychobabble, but it isn't. Stay with me. 
as image bearers of God, individuals who understand that can have and enjoy God and other people. Ladies and gentlemen, most people that we run into have no clue who they are. And they struggle with that. As image, seeing each other's unique creations, Psalm 139, as living sacrifices for believers in Romans chapter 12, as highly valued and bought by Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Not only are we, I think, in our works to lead others, to help them understand and have a right relationship with themselves. In other words, understanding that they're sinful, understanding that Christ redeemed them, understanding that they can have forgiveness and peace regardless of what's happened in their lives. We have helped them have a right relationship as to who they are as not only image bearers of God, but children of Jesus Christ. And then to assist others who are being helped to restore and maintain right relationships with others. I would submit to you that in your life experience and in my life experience, most of the time when we find somebody who needs help, that is our neighbor, such as the victim in, the, in Luke chapter 10, or the man sick with palsy, or whomever, the Samaritan woman, that they have broken relationships with other people. And it's our privilege as possessors of the Word of God and the truths of the Word of God and image bearers of God and ambassadors of God to be able to help restore broken relationships, but also then to restore man's right relationship with creation through intellectual and vocational development, understanding and embracing one's equipping in their current time and place, and helping them live out the creation mandate, making the best use of their resources, their talents, and the, cre- and, and the resources of creation itself. That basically boils down to being able to take care of themselves. And people need people to come alongside of them and help them to do that. So, Do you know, the next question is, then, as a believer, in understanding and embracing a God-honoring approach to good works, I would say this. We are admonished, as I've mentioned, to engage in good works, but in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, a key word that goes along with this is to be prepared. Are we prepared to engage in the activity of love and good works. And that implies intentionality. It, it implies intentionality for the planned, and it implies intentionality for the unplanned. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know, I can't, all I can do is share you my stories, share with you my stories. But time after time, God has presented myself and or Becky opportunities that we never planned on. Just like the man that was the victim on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Are we ready for those? And then to be devoted. Okay, so be ready, be devoted. We're de- as as, as Paul, uh, Paul writes to Titus in chapter 3, verse 8, we're de- to devote ourselves to superintend, to plan over every good work. And let, us, let our people learn. To, learn. This, is interesting. This, is a, this is a great admonishment in Titus chapter 3, verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So, what does this look like? Not only know who your neighbors are. I've already submitted to you that Christ has given us a good idea of who our neighbors are. But things that I think come along with this in understanding how to be like Jesus is one, to be observant. Also, to be compassionate. To be wise and discerning because we have to be careful how we help people. And when appropriate, we render aid, whether it's planned or unplanned. Who are your neighbors? Those you come across in your daily course of life. The gentleman that that came down off the steps that had the birdhouses on his head. Who knows who it is? But ladies ladies and gentlemen, if we're not not prepared for that, if we're not thinking in those terms, if we don't look at the opportunities that God has given us, we're not going to recognize them. And then also, sometimes there are those that you choose to seek out. See, I think that God works in people's hearts who are seeking him, to pursue passions. And some of you have passions in certain areas. And you can pursue those passions and honor God and engage in good works that bless other people. So not only those you come across in your daily life, but those that you choose to seek out. And then as we drill down in this, victims. Likely even in this room, in fact, I know, I know for a fact that there are victims. 
Oftentimes they don't tell us they're victims. But if we're observant and we're compassionate and we're ambassadors and we're ministers of grace, I submit to you that those people who are victims will come to us just as people came to Jesus because we've exuded the aroma, the sweet aroma of Jesus Christ. But we must be compassionate towards these folks. And the types of victims are numerous. I won't elaborate that now, but I'll tell you that God has worked in my, in my life and Becky's life in the past, and he's used us because he presented us like a person on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho with an opportunity that's turned into ministry. And not only one-time ministry, but multiple opportunities for ministers to, for ministry and to serve a body, a large body of people because we were willing to engage with victims. Outcast, those rejected by the community, those who are underserved on the edge of educational financial co- collapse, and those who are not able to help themselves because there's limitations imposed upon them because of circumstances. We could go on with the list, but we'll stop with that. There are people who need an ad- advocate, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But there are people who can't represent themselves, and they can't take care of themselves. But as ministers of grace and having the strength and the ability and the resources, we can do that. So consider then connecting yourself with ministry and service. And I'm going to use a word here, and I want you to be careful about what I'm going to say here because I don't want to be misunderstood. But I'm going to challenge some of you to connect with ministry and service opportunities that are outside of Palmetto Baptist Church. Ladies and gentlemen, our church is to help. You're to come here to come. You're here to grow, you're here to connect, and you're here to do what? And our local church can't do everything. The pastoral team have limitations of time and skill and opportunity. But you all are like salt that are being dispersed out into the community, and God can take you and disperse you and use you out there. Now, does that, am I trying to place these opportunities and supersede them above the local church ministry or Palmetto? Absolutely not. But we're equipping you to engage in the work of the ministry. And I think that there's plenty of those opportunities. I'm going to highlight a few of them. There's people who are currently engaged as members of Palmetto who are involved in ministries that are outside of this church. And we, don't, we, we work with them, but we're not necessarily specifically sponsoring them. Some of them we do, some of them we don't. But we support them with prayer and encouragement and with resources and with people. So the first one that comes to my, my mind is Christian Discipleship International. And today during ETS, you're going to hear from Paul Miller and Jeff First about CDI. And they are engaged in bringing the word of God around the world globally to underserved communities. Could you guys use some uh, volunteers? Jeff? Paul? Oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Sure could. Okay. Then I think of Carpenters for Christ. Joe and Debbie Bush are not here today. But, but Carpenters for Christ t- does an annual uh, trip somewhere in South Carolina and helps a church build a building. Then I think of Habitat for Humanity, and we're involved and engaged in Habitat. Numbers of you have come to that, particularly in Anderson County. I'm trying to get connected to the Greenville County Habitat as well so that we can engage in serving other people. And by the way, you, I, I wish I had time to share with you my story, my Habitat story. But because of decisions that Becky and I made 34, 35 years ago, we are still engaged with people that we touched that long ago through Habitat. Then I think of Piedmont Women's Center. I know that many of you are involved in that. Then, is Martha here this morning, Martha Murphy? Martha Murphy? I'm going to call you out if you're here. Martha Murphy? Martha? No? Okay. She's a guardian ad litem. How many have a clue what a guardian ad litem is? Okay, guardian ad litems represent in the, in the foster care system children to their, and, and they are resource people and they help them with, they help the system and the children and they bring resources to them. That's a volunteer position. In fact, there's one lady who's the whole, the whole state system is named after because she was a servant and gave herself to serve other people. But there's a need there. There's also um, the... Um, Chaplaincies, okay, Dan, where are you? I saw Dan. Dan's involved in a chaplaincy, correct? He's involved in a juvenile detention center. 
ladies and gentlemen, the, the prisons, the state systems, I don't have all these resources now. I tried to garner them. I'm sorry I don't have them all. But uh, they, there's opportunities there. I talked with Hannah um, Stover on, on Wednesday, and she said, uh, did you realize that there are, there are chaplaincies to uh, law enforcement people? I had no clue. She said, I've had a chaplain ride along with me when I'm on duty, and it's been amazing. The opportunities are so extensive and so uh, numerous. Uh, others, uh, ones that just come to mind, Good News Clubs, you've heard of them. Uh, there's, a, there's a church in uh, Anderson. It's a Spanish-speaking church that's being planted. They need Spanish people who can come, Spanish speakers who can come and teach the Word of God uh, and join hands, join hands with them. Then I go on to foster parenting. I don't know if you've noticed, but as you drive around the community, there's little signs that are asking for volunteers for foster parents. And I could go on and on. With the Lord's help, we'll, we'll get this out, uh, some of these opportunities out to you. Uh, there's actually a resource guide for Anderson County that's amazing that a family put together. There's a similar website. What I want to say about that is this. Everything that you see that might be on these links is not necessarily an endorsement, but what it is is an exposure. It's showing you where those opportunities lie, and perhaps God has a place for you in one of those organizations. Volunteer to serve on boards. I have been, uh, this is to God's glory, this is, but I have been solicited in the last month twice to serve on another volunteer board that is a ministry to people who are hurting. And the need is there. And some of us have the skill sets to help boards. So as we tie this together, in the spirit of come, grow, connect, and go, I would encourage you with this. To the best of your ability, filled with the spirit of God, submitted to him, acting as a living sacrifice, be an imitator of Jesus Christ. Know that you are a minister of grace, of unmerited favor. With every single person that you encounter every single day, you can minister grace, unmerited favor, by the way you interact with them. Not only are you a minister of grace, but you're an ambassador, as we've talked about, and that didn't appear on my slide, so that's my error. We're sweet aromas. Think about that. Whatever your sweet aroma might be, wherever you go, people notice it. For me, it's barbecue smoke. I love it. It's great stuff. And then, let me leave you with this challenge. Rise to the occasion. Engaging in good works is not, as a believer, doing it in a biblical way is not social gospel. It is being Jesus in our community. So in rising to the occasion, know your neighbor. And let me leave you with this. Be zealous of and devoted to be engaged in good works. Let's pray.